Get up to 30% off wedding jewelry at BlueNile.com and remember the joy of your wedding day forever. Blue Nile offers everything from diamond and lab-grown diamond wedding bands to classic pearls, earrings you can design yourself, even gorgeous sapphire pieces for your something blue. Whatever you choose, Blue Nile's pieces are all graded for excellence, for a lasting memento as brilliant as the love that inspired it. Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Oliver Wiseman, CapEx's editor. In this week's spring statement, Philip Hammond described himself as positively tiggerish about the economic news he was bringing to the House of Commons. His good news was, in large part, down to a minuscule improvement to the Office of Budget Responsibility's growth forecasts. It's a reminder of just how central GDP is to policymakers' decisions, as well as how little thought most of us put into what is behind this all-important number. That makes this week the perfect time to talk to David Pilling, the Africa editor of the Financial Times, and the author of The Growth Delusion. David thinks there's a major problem with the way we measure growth. In fact, he goes further. It's not just we aren't measuring growth properly, it's that we're too slavishly devoted to it in the first place. I spoke to David at the FT's offices about what really goes into the most important number in economics, and how we could possibly be too focused on growth when it raises living standards and allows us to live longer, happier lives. So David, in The Growth Delusion, you are really writing about two things, I think. One is the problems with how we measure growth. The other is our attitude to growth more generally and whether uh, we should be quite so obsessed with it, or at least whether we should change our kind of approach to it. So let's start with the first half, uh, specifically GDP. In your book, you say if GDP were a person, it would be mercenary and amoral. Uh, What did you mean by that? Well, um, we measure only activities for for which money changes hands. If we define the economy as something, then what is in the economy are only things where we're trading bits of paper, i.e. cash. And so if you uh, look after a relative, that's not part of the economy, part of GDP. But if you look after someone else's relative and are paid for that, then it is. So that's the, I suppose, the mercenary Mm -hmm. uh, bit Um, The amoral bit, and I didn't say immoral, but the amoral bit is that um, we count anything. Um, So if if I sell you a gun, that's counted. If I sell you uh, a nuclear weapon, that's counted. If I sell you heroin, uh, that is counted. At least it's counted in Europe. Uh, Mm. It's not not actually counted in America, which brings on to another question, which is the slightly arbitrary nature of this thing that we consider kind of um, all-encompassing and... uh, and sort of irrefutable. But uh, the broad point is that what we count as, as the economy is anything that's produced, good, bad, or indifferent. And actually, we count pollution as well. Um, it's certainly counted implicitly in the cost of 
the thing that we produce. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, if you then have to clean that up, um, that is also counts to GDP. So in a funny sort of sense, the more you pollute, the better for GDP, because you not only count it once, but you count it twice. So that's the amoral bit. Uh, and I mean, I could speak at much greater length about that, but that's the kind of short answer to your question. And you, I think in the book, say you got onto this idea, ironically, as an FT journalist. And we're, we're recording this in the FT now. The FT is the leading um, producer of financial journalism in the world. And you said you, find your, you found yourself sort of throwing in GDP numbers into stories as a, as a foreign correspondent and not really putting that much thought into sort of what, what was actually behind those numbers and, and what, what they actually said about the economy you were reporting on. Well, I think we use GDP as shorthand. And to be honest, it, is, it can be very useful shorthand. But one gets used very quickly, I think, as a foreign correspondent working for the FT or any financial newspaper, you know, to write, to, to write things like um, what's the tax take as a percentage of GDP mm -hmm. or debt as a percentage of GDP. And that, uh, there, there is a certain sense to that because it enables you to, to compare with another country. And as long as the GDPs that you're comparing, either denominator, is, is calculated in the same way, then, you know, it enables you to make cross-border comparisons. But we can take this to ridiculous extremes and we can say, you know, certain economy is growing 0.5% a year and this one's growing 1% a year. So that one's, you know, the 1% economy must be better run, better organized um, without really stopping to think, well, maybe those measurements aren't telling us everything we think. But the, but the kind of narrower point really was that I think a lot of journalists, including myself, just used that as a kind of shorthand, but didn't really delve into well, what is this GDP mm -hmm. we're talking about. And I would defy many people, um, you know, even smart people, even people, dare I say, in this building who use the words the economy, growth and GDP as though it's self-evident what those mean without actually stopping to think precisely what do they mean. And, you know, to further my point, I mean, GDP and in, in that sense, the definition of what we call the economy, something that we all think we intuitively know what it is. But it was invented in the 1930s and kind of um, refined in the 1940s. This isn't a very old measure. Mm -hmm. Political parties in Britain didn't use the term the economy in its modern sense um, until 1950. And now it would be inconceivable. I think the Tory party in its last manifesto used the term 59 times. It would be inconceivable not to talk about improving the economy, increasing the economy, bringing in policies that will make the economy better. And yet this is a fairly modern phenomenon because the measure of the economy was only invented in the 1930s. I'm glad, I'm glad you brought up the invention of, of GDP because I was very interested to read that the, the, the inventor of GDP, firstly, he, he, want, he didn't sort of imagine it to be the thing it's become. And for instance, I think he wanted defense spending to be excluded from GDP. And he sort of came to the conclusion that he'd created a kind of Frankenstein's monster. Um, well, I think that was my phrase, that to your? be fair, <laughs> the, the Frankenstein's monster. But he was certainly, you know, it came out in 1934, the kind of the proto-GDP, mm -hmm. uh, as it were, because... Frank and this is, I should have said, is, it's Kuznets is the name Simon, of it. Simon Kuznets. So Simon Kuznets was asked by um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt to come up with a measure for the economy because there really wasn't one before that. And uh, Roosevelt wanted to know what had happened to the economy because, of course, Roosevelt wanted to spend um, in, in the New Deal mm -hmm. to get economic activity going again. But until 
he actually knew what had happened to it. So what they had was things like freight car loadings, which were down. The stock market was terrible. There was clearly lots of unemployment. There were lots of people on the street. Uh, and they measured unemployment to a certain extent. But what Kuznets came up with was this single number, one number that would encapsulate the economy. But Kuznets warned in the preface uh, to his document, you know, there were a number of things that he warned about. First, he said the headline number um, is not uh, the most important number in these uh, figures. One needs to look at the constituent parts. That was, was something that I would say is completely ignored. Second, he said, this number has nothing to do with well-being. Never, ever, ever confuse this number with well-being, something I think that we've absolutely ignored. And third, he said, yes, you're right, that he wanted to subtract things from GDP. And this was part of it, in a sense, his um, aim to turn our measurement of the economy into something that we might want. So mm. he thought yeah, armaments um, shouldn't really be counted because they were a a defensive expenditure. Yeah, or they, destructive they, by definition. They were destructive, defensive. I mean, they, you know, to him, they represented a kind of failure of diplomatic policy. You wouldn't need them if you were friends with all other nations. Yeah. You could see this as a very idealistic position. Um, he wanted to remove financial speculation, something that I think, and we could talk about this, but it's something that I think you could argue makes him quite prescient. Mm -hmm. He saw, you know, moving about bits of paper and spe speculating as not valuable activities in themselves and maybe even dangerous. He wants to remove roads, and um, certainly the roads that took people to work, because he saw that as an input into the output, the output being workers' production. Um, and GDP, these, these things get quite complicated, but GDP is not actually a measure of all the things we produce. It's a measure of the value added. Mm -hmm. So you would take out the flour in bread because you've already counted right. um, the wheat in the flour and the flour in the bread. So you don't so double it, count. You don't double count. So Kuznets thought that we shouldn't double count roads because they were only really an input into production. I bring that up because it actually shows you that what we think of the economy, something self-evident, is not that self-evident because where you draw the boundary, what you include and what you don't include in order not to double count is actually not necessarily intuitive. And and that, that question has obviously only got more complicated as, as time's gone on. And I'm glad we're talking about when it was invented because it's a product of its time too in the sense that it's it's sort of done with industrial production in mind. It's about, as, as you alluded to, it's about stuff being made and sold for a value, something which more and more things in our economy are not, you know, are, are, doesn't really reflect well, more and more things. That's in our entirely right. So GDP is a child of the manufacturing age, absolutely. It was, you know, uh, um, produced originally in answer to recession, and then it was refined um, really in the run-up to the Second World War. It's very good at measuring, as somebody said the other day, things you can put in a wheelbarrow. It's very poor at measuring intangibles. Mm -hmm. But our modern economies, really sort of 80% mm -hmm. of modern economies are services. And GDP is terrible at measuring haircuts. It's terrible at measuring psychoanalysis sessions. It's terrible at measuring, you know, Beethoven's fifth as performed, you know, in a, in a London uh, auditorium. The only way to improve Beethoven's fifth in a London auditorium is, uh, from a GDP perspective, is to, is to ask the orchestra to play it at twice the speed. <laughs> um, you know, GDP is, 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 in a sense, a measure of productivity, but very poor at measuring the productivity of a service, because the productivity of a service is really the quality of a service. Mm -hmm. And it's a measure that's wholly, it wasn't designed to encapsulate that, and it's certainly very poor at it. And so it's left kind of grappling with our modern economies. And I think... You know, while while the number that it produces is not meaningless, it is 
less and less meaningful as our economies evolve. I think another good example of that is the, um, I think I'm right in thinking that music streaming services like Spotify basically mean we're, we're spending less on music, but we have an infinite choice of music. But from a sort of GDP point of view, that's, that's uh, right. It's a bad thing because we're another example is Wikipedia. So you know, one you know, if you compare it with the pre-internet economy, we had the Encyclopedia Britannica, mm-hmm. um, which contributed to GDP in all sorts of ways. You know, you had to saw down trees, you had to turn trees into paper, um, you know, you had to print the books, uh, you had to pay for the people to write, uh, you had to pay for a salesman to go around and sell these huge volumes, who you need to put up bookshelves to keep them. And uh, we now have Wikipedia sort of, you know, an approximation of all human knowledge available to all human beings, at least those with access to uh, the internet. For free. For free. And it's therefore its contribution to GDP is zero. Mm-hmm. So you can see how our utility, to use a, a word that economists would be very familiar with, a utility has gone up because we have instant access to an awful lot of human knowledge um, at, no ex- at no charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet from you know, our best measure of economic activity, that, that actually values it at nothing. And, and so if tech is sort of one of the areas where it's a difficult question, uh, the other area you focus on, um, and I should say to listeners, you're the Africa editor of the FT, so something you know a thing or two about, is, um, is sort of developing economies, and, and there's some, some unique challenges there. I enjoyed the, the, the passage in your book about the Nigerian economy. Uh, you talked to, is it there, I think, their head of statistics or something who basically spent years measuring the economy, came to the conclusion that they had been mismeasuring it by a absolutely astoundingly large figure. And that's a product of just how complicated it is to measure economic activity in a place like Nigeria. Yes, it is. I mean, they did a, a, something which is actually quite common, which is they rebased um, uh, the year in which they kind of, they took as the base year for the statistics. Mm-hmm. And this is something that you have to do um, in poorer countries uh, because this is an expensive exercise, you do it less frequently. So this man is called Yemi Kale, who in fact I met in Abuja only a couple of weeks ago. He uh, was charged with rebasing um, uh, the statistics. And rebasing is important because, for example, the statistics as uh, before the rebasing exercise didn't include mobile phones because they hadn't been invented yet. But Nigeria had this huge uptake of mobile phones. So you had a whole section of the economy that was basically kind of invisible to GDP before rebasing. Anyway, post-rebasing, he discovered that the economy was 89% bigger than we thought it was. And this is not a ridiculous exercise. He wasn't kind of making this up. You could argue that he was right, that the economy indeed was 90% or 89% bigger than previously thought. For me, the interesting thing was that people didn't just say, well, yes, this is, but this is an accounting exercise. People took this quite seriously. So the Nigerians celebrated because suddenly their economy was the biggest in Africa. It surpassed South Africa. Um, investment banks said, oh, you see, we told you Nigeria is, is, you know, is, is a much more important economy than people had thought. Big companies went to their boards and said, you know, this is a richer place. Wasn't there also a, there was another side to it too, where sort of everyday Nigerians felt especially hard done by because if we're so rich why am i not uh... well that's right normal nigerians were not feeling this i mean in many senses and in many cases nigerians feel poorer and poorer you know a lot of the nigerian economy has certainly stagnated what you've got is a you've got an oil economy 
Um, and you've got little kind of enclaves, you know, of banking and finance and some very sophisticated bits of the economy. But you've got a lot of people who've really been left behind. So they, this was sort of adding insult to injury. Not only did they feel desperately poor and unable to send their kids to school and, and access healthcare, but suddenly they were living in a country that was supposedly um, twice as rich as, uh, as it had been before, which led them to believe, I suppose, that a lot of this money had been stolen or had been... Uh, yeah, uh, sort of cornered then, by the elites. There's another challenging challenge in developing countries because of um, measuring economic activity that doesn't involve transactions that you know appear on a balance sheet. Well, that that's exactly can, right, and that's slightly different from the Nigerian it's case. It's a separate but, point, but, but yeah, it is a separate point. But you're right. Um, you know, as I said before, we measure transactions, and and that's one of the good things about GDP because it's a very good kind of predictor of what tax you ought to be able to squeeze out of that economic activity. But in the developing world, an awful lot of um, of activity is is outside that. You know, it's it's barter, it's subsistence, it's un- underground, it's people just with very small economy, you know, very small transactions, going to market, selling a few tomatoes and whatever. None of this is really captured in GDP. The only thing to do is estimate or guesstimate. Uh, you know, let me give you an example. So, if you imagine nightlights lights that go on in a country uh, at night. This is a pretty good proxy, actually, for economic activity. And there was a research team that decided to use this technique to measure the Kenyan economy. And you can see it very starkly in something like the Korean peninsula. You've got South Korea at night, which is ablaze with lights, and North Korea is virtually dark. It's really quite stark. Mm -hmm. So this same exercise was performed in Kenya, and you've got satellites whizzing over the Earth at incredible frequencies. And so you can pick up um, data extraordinarily accurately, certainly far more accurately than you know, under-resourced teams of statisticians going around from Nairobi with clipboards you know, to households saying, how much did you spend? How much did you earn? Um, you yeah. know, to companies, how much did you produce? So picking up these nightlights, these researchers came to the conclusion that official GDP statistics were vastly exaggerating the contribution of Nairobi to um, to Kenya's economy. Whereas, in fact, there was huge ex- economic activity outside um, Nairobi in, in rural Kenya that just was not being picked up by, you know, the normal methods of working out the economy. So you've got a very different picture of the economy. To me, this was interesting I mean, it's very hard for me to say which of those two pictures is more accurate. I have my suspicions. But we can say that you're getting a, a very different picture from, from outer space than you are from the normal statistics uh, that we rely on all the time. And I think there's some reason to believe that these uh, nightlights might give you perhaps even a more accurate picture in, in that, that setting. Certainly a very different take on what's going on in, a, in an economy like Kenya's. There isn't really an easy on the ground solution to something like that, is there? I mean, in a way, what that all all that does is it, it demonstrates to you this one number GDP quite how much there is going on behind it, even somewhere like London. I mean, even somewhere where where things are, um, where, where it is much easier compared to rural Kenya to to record things. There's still so much involved in it. Sure, there may be somebody painting someone else's house, charging them cash. Yeah, um, you know which counts as kind of unrecorded economic activity uh, as opposed to someone else painting someone else's house because mm-hmm. they're a next door neighbor and they want to do it mm-hmm. you know voluntarily mm-hmm. um which isn't part of 
GDP and ought not to be captured, if mm -hmm. you see what I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, so these lines that we take extraordinarily seriously of what is part of the economy and what is not part of the economy, mm -hmm. to some extent, I think, are, are, are arbitrary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com ACAST. That's greenlight.com ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Yes, GDP doesn't, it doesn't measure welfare. It doesn't measure, you know, it includes spending on things that are actively bad, as we discussed, guns and so on. But if you look, but if there's a lesson from economic history, it's that GDP is a pretty good measure of, or not a measure of, but when GDP goes up, other stuff gets better too. And we, and we sort of know that, you know, no matter what part of the world we're in. So, you know, you can guess literary rates of countries, for instance, with some accuracy based on their GDP. That's absolutely true. And I, and I at no point in the book um, deny that. In fact, I explicitly say that. So GDP is a pretty good proxy, I would argue, up until about $15,000 per capita. Mm -hmm. we, can, we can argue about the number. But it's a, it's, a, it's a pretty good proxy of what you can do. Not necessarily what you do do, because um, the correlation is not perfect, because you can have a country whose GDP goes up um, quite a lot, but it depends what the government does with that money. Uh, so, for example, Equatorial Guinea has, has a very good GDP per capita, um, but that tells you absolutely nothing in Equatorial Guinea's case, actually, about the uh, life of the average person, because that money actually belongs to a tiny elite, mm -hmm. and and the, the average person in Equatorial Guinea is left in you know, pretty much abject poverty. But you are right. If you have a, a decent government and you don't have incredibly skewed um, distribution um, of the income that you're creating, then GDP is a very good proxy of, you know, the ability to not die before you're five years old, uh, go to school, uh, access health care, um, have certain opportunities in terms of jobs and income. Obviously, being able to put a roof over your head, access to electricity, access to water, all of those things um, can be bought um, with growth. And there is a, as you, a, you know, a, a relatively good correlation between those things. It does begin to break down 
uh, uh, middle income level, and then what we might call well-being and uh, GDP per capita, that correlation becomes much fuzzier, I would argue. On a, on a related point to the one you just made, I enjoyed the, I think it's actually a story you tell secondhand, maybe from, is it Hans Rosling, who, um, there's a story about a speech, a, a Cuban minister giving a speech in which he, he boasts about being the, uh, Cubans being the, is it the healthiest poor people in the world? And uh, he, the person he's with says, oh, we're also the poorest healthy people in the world. So That's exactly right. The outliers are exactly, they're, they're exceptions to the rule. They're not. Well, they're sort of outliers, but it's also, it's also causal. So, uh, you know, you said um, GDP is, is very good sort of proxy of the things that we want. Well, that's the, the right way of putting it in a sense. The object isn't growth and GDP. Mm-hmm. Growth and GDP can give you the means to um, acquire the things you, you, you want, or that I would argue that you ought to want, um, you know, that when you're very poor, access to healthcare, you know, maternal care, um, you know, roads, water, sanitation, um, all of that stuff. Um, but it is, it's the means to acquire that. Mm-hmm. It, the growth isn't the end in itself. So Angola was growing at 10% a year, year after year after year after year, but really didn't do nearly as much with that extra income as it ought to have done. Mm-hmm. So we ought to put the cart before the horse and we ought to realise what the growth is for. It's not, as it sometimes is, uh, just a kind of, you know, a macho contest between economies, who's growing faster and who's doing better. What we ought to be judging is is what states, governments, societies then do with that wherewithal um, to produce better societies. I think two of the and the two main areas you you sort of push back on the growth thing on in in the most explicit way are measuring hap, a sort of hap, the, the efforts to measure happiness or well being rather than wealth mm-hmm. and secondly um factor in factoring in uh, the environment and sustainability more into into so let's talk about the second one of those first the okay. environmental side of things all right well first of all you know gdp is a measure of income it's what you call a flow measure so it measures uh, the income in in any one year mm-hmm. it, it's in that sense a backward looking measure it tells you what you produced in a given period it doesn't tell you anything about what you may be able to produce next year. So if you take an extreme example, an oil an oil producing country, fantastic GDP this year, but GDP doesn't tell you that unfortunately the oil ran out. So what do you do next year? Unless you've turned that oil into other kinds of wealth, then uh, you know, you're not going to be able to produce GDP next year. So so that's the kind of sustainability picture. Uh, but there's, you know, that's a non that's a, a non-renewable resource, but we also have renewable resources. Yeah. We have the air, we have the oceans, we have um, complex um, uh, ecosystems. You could be absolutely ruining those and GDP wouldn't tell you anything about it. Uh, So if you were doing GDP accounting of Easter Island, um, whose entire society relied on trees um, uh, for cover, for farming, uh, for carrying their religious objects in which the whole society revolved around these huge stone statues, from the interior to the coast, which were all kind of rolled on logs. So the entire society was built around trees. And yet, at one point, a guy 
chopped down the last tree and suddenly and, and thought, although this was, of course, before the age of GDP, but in a sense thought, I, here I am, you know, contributing to GDP. But, yeah. But clocking but, up another kind of percent but, of. But the society collapsed. Yeah. Um, because GDP is a measure, as I say, of of this flow of wealth, of flow of income, but doesn't really tell you anything about the underlying wealth. So I think we need we need some sort of measure when, of the sustainability. Of I would guess one of the things I'd push back on is when when we do talk about let's take the earlier example you, you brought up of a, of a very oil rich company, a country, sorry, that could suddenly run out of oil. Yes, that's not that's not of course not captured in GDP, but that is captured in people's assessment of that you know economist assessment of that country investors in that country's view of that country you know we do take a broader view of these things and one thing you talk about in your book actually is you, is you basically are you have a sort of a dashboard of, mm-hmm. of of figures that you look at um and i sort of found myself thinking well isn't that kind of what we isn't that kind of what we do already what we do already maybe um i, I kind of think that we Think we do that, but uh, but we have be, we we become sort of obsessed with this idea of of growth and improving the economy, and we don't think about sustainability. You know, if you look at the planet, uh, I don't think there'd be many people that would deny that we're doing sort of serious damage to the planet, which may come back to bite either mm-hmm. us or future generations. So, if we are making these assessments that you think we're making. You could say, well, why? Why have we, you know, chopped down rainforests to the extent we have? Why have we poisoned the oceans to the extent mm-hmm. we have? Why do we produce so much plastic, uh, even though we know it's going to be around for hundreds of years and some future generation is going to? So we count the plastic as a positive. That's a positive in GDP. We don't count as a negative a future generation that's going to have to deal with that. So you you know you could argue that argue that that's the tragedy of the commons. That's because some of this stuff happens yeah. internationally, and you know our accounting is on a is on a nation state level. But so we do we just, but we do we do count carbon emissions, for instance, in in Britain, and we do celebrate the fact that those emissions are going down. And um, we, yes, it's not yes, it's not in, within the number GDP, but in a policymaker's brain. Obviously, it depends on the policymaker, but it is something that they they are thinking of. But then, in a sense, that's exa- that's entirely what I'm arguing for. So, right. uh, so well, I, I know say, you. I'm so, saying so how I would, bad is the state so of quo? Say, so I would say we're on the same side of that debate, in a sense, uh, because what I'm saying is that we need to consciously kind of demote mm-hmm. GDP growth, the economy as currently counted, and promote some other measures. Mm-hmm. Not to not to be the lord of all measures, but to but to be in this dashboard measure. So I would say CO two. So you 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 would say to me, look, we're already doing that. But I would say, what politician would would really stand up and say, you know, I'm going to stake my, you know, my five years in office on what I do to CO two emissions. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can guarantee that CO two emissions were not mentioned fifty nine times in the Tory party manifesto, and. Um, you know, we may count them, but they are, but they're subsumed. You only need to look at policy in America, where, yeah. where where you know Trump's pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, where you know the most important ec- economy in the world still has decided that actually this is a measure that's actually not worth it at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, you have individual states that are pushing back. But- so it's there in society. I absolutely agree with you, but it's not sort of codified, and it certainly is not a number that's that's anywhere near as powerful as this other number that we think cannot possibly be sacrificed for anything, which is growth. 
But if you take if you move away from the environment for a second, or it's a related point of the environment, it, it's in, things, for instance, like I mean, there are tons of decisions where the government makes or a political party's platform is based on stuff where they actively choose the non-growth option. I mean, there is no Heathrow expansion in Britain for political reasons because the Conservative Party has decided West London politics is more important than mm-hmm. than than the economy in that case, or planning law that um, that beauty in terms of our streets is more important than well, that's debatable in terms of some of London's new buildings. But you take my point that regulating planning, uh, regulating housing, it's not ju- you know we are focusing on things other than growth when we do that, and lots of policy decisions are. Growth doesn't always trump, but I think it tends to trump. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are examples. Parks in London are a great example. But from a kind of strictly economic point of view, they're utterly irrational parks. Why mm-hmm. on earth do we have them? You know, you could be building, you know, perfectly good factories yeah. um, on Hyde Park uh, or on Richmond Park. Why on earth don't we do that? And there are cities that have done exactly that. I mean, I, I've lived in Asia um, where, of course, growth and GDP and catching up with the West became paramount, uh, you know, show me parks in Osaka or mm. Seoul, and they're few and far between. I mean, a lot of these places now are kind of recalibrating and maybe, but there, there can be this kind of lunge for growth. And growth, I would say, trumps things. I do agree that, you know, local politics, that other types of politics, you know, can occasionally weigh in. But I still think that sometimes subconsciously uh, we prioritise growth you know, let me give you another example. So um, breast milk. Yeah. Breast milk doesn't count uh, to GDP at all, um, whereas powdered milk does. You can be absolutely sure, and again, this may be subconscious, but a, fa- a factory that provides jobs, tax, income from producing powdered milk, you know, will have an influence in political thinking. Um, in a way that somebody saying breast milk is really good for babies and if only people would uh, breastfeed more, then we wouldn't have, um, you know, we'd have far less uh, illness, even death um, in in young infants. Um, and if you look around the world, I think a fifth of infants could be uh, saved if, you, if people um, breastfed for a surprisingly sort of short period of time. But you can see how something that contributes zero to the economy or rather appears to contribute zero to the economy because we don't capture all those externalities, in this case, positive externalities, um, sort of counts for very little in the in the real political world, whereas something that in this sense is kind of on the bad side of the debate actually counts for something because it's captured in GDP. Yep. Now, I think you're right. It would be very hard to draw a line and sort of say, you know, this has power and this doesn't because it's part of GDP. But intuitively, I think you can kind of see um, how what we measure influences what we do and the policy decisions that we take. But I think that brings you on to another, I think the final area, which is the kind of measuring well-being versus growth um, thing. And I would mischievously suggest that if you... I mean, one of the things you talk about a lot in your book is this sort of is a sort of tyranny of, and it's probably overstating it, but a tyranny of economists and, and economics in terms of decision making, um, policy making, and so on. Isn't the problem with the idea that we need a number that measures happiness that you actually just expand the powers of those those same economists that you're so fed up with at the moment? Um, and actually, one of the nice things about GDP is it's, we know what it measures. It measures something quite specific, even if it's complicated. And 
in that sense, we've sort of, we've sort of, we sort of isolated, ca- yeah, carved off as a private area of life where we we aren't told what the right and wrong thing to do is. Yeah, do you what, see what I mean? The sort of libertarian case for GDP rather than. Yeah, my uh, no, I can see what you mean. I mean, you know, to be fair to my book, my book has a chapter on attempts to measure happiness. It certainly yeah, yeah. doesn't conclude, and at no point no. does it say this is what we ought to go off and do. And it certainly doesn't say, you know, a, a subjective well-being, mm-hmm. as it as it tends to be called, because um, it sounds more serious than happiness. That a subjective well-being number should be on a par with GDP. I never, I never remotely suggest that. What I did find when I was sort of looking at this is that measures of subjective well-being are actually more robust than I might have imagined, and there were a number of examples of that. For for example, I had imagined before looking at this that if you measure happiness in poor countries and rich countries, that poor countries would come out pretty much just as well. And they don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a correlation. Yeah. Um, not perfect at all. Um, some countries do much better. And Costa Rica is a Costa Rica one, is a real outlier. So it does much better than its GDP per capita would suggest. But there is a correlation, which, which leads me to believe that the number isn't just a kind of figment of people's imagination, that it does measure something real. The other thing, uh, th- there was also a study which I found very interesting that showed that, uh, and this is, I think, over f- with 40 years of data, that subjective well-being numbers were, a be- were, co- were better correlated with election results than GDP, which I thought was mm-hmm. really interesting. But what I would argue is that studying this as a kind of what, what you might call in a satellite account, but taking it relatively seriously, is a different po- provides a different policy prism so Richard Layard, who in the book I call the Lord of Happiness, mm. um, who, who has devoted decades to studying this, you know, for example, he's come to the conclusion from looking at the data that we ought to be putting more money into mental health care um, because the data tells him that you get a much bigger bang for your buck um, improving people's sort of, um, you know, mental well-being, people who are depressed, people who maybe have you know, mild or serious forms of um, uh, mental illness that, you know, with relatively little intervention, you can actually, you know, Make produce big a big gain in happiness, mm-hmm. however that is measured. But as I say, I think slightly more robustly than we might think, than in more sort of interventionist policies that may be designed at sort of huge redistribution of wealth. Now, again, that's sort of contri- controversial, but I think it it, it it's an it provides an interesting and a, a potentially very useful sort of extra prism for looking at policy. This is, you know, in Britain, for example, you know, we just, I think, reduced spending on mental mm. health care by four billion pounds, a relatively small amount of money. I'm sure it seems important. But if you look at Layard's research, he would tell you that you get such a huge bang from that four billion pounds mm. that even from a kind of narrow economic definition, you know, it's worth th- it. this is worth it. But you would never know that unless you were trying to look at things slightly differently. Layard was actually hired by Cameron, I think, wasn't he, to try and introduce some of this? Yes, and, and I it think didn't on, quite sort of take it hasn't on, quite but. taken on. Although I think you know, on the kind of periphery of politics. I mean, first of all, the ONS still does measure this stuff, so it is there, and so we're getting kind of regular bursts of data that that we can track. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think on the kind of periphery of policy. It's had an influence. I mean, I can't quite tell you which policies have, you know, been changed as a result. But the fact that we're able to talk about, for example, 
um, you know, mental health care and at least have an argument about it. And I think, you know, and rely to a certain extent on Layard's data shows you that things have moved on a tiny bit. So I agree, it's not, not taken in a huge way, but I don't think, uh, you know, it's been entirely shelved. And more generally, with the, one final question, more generally with the, the points in your book about GDP and, um, and so on, and, and not just in Britain, but globally, do you feel like there's a sort of, do you feel like the tide, there's a sort of tide turning? Do you feel like there is a sense that GDP is not the be-all and end-all? I think there is. And, you know, you could argue then there's no need to write the book because everyone kind of feels this anyway. But I sort of felt as though it was important to articulate what a lot of people feel. So I think quite a lot of people sense this. I mean, there's a few few reasons that lead lead me to believe this. One is if you write articles about it, and and in fact, the book itself, you know, there's there's a real market for this stuff. People kind of are quite hungry for it. And I think it's because they sense that something's wrong, but don't quite that, but haven't quite figured out why and what. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Nicolas Sarkozy said that if uh, the former French president said that if people don't trust their official statistics and don't sense that there's a reflection of their lives in those official statistics, they're liable to get angry and that this is a, a you know, potentially very damaging to democracy. Now, he said this 10 years ago, mm. um, you know, I, doesn't, but, you know, whatever you think about Brexit and about people voting for Trump, but you could argue that this is kind of in that, you know, in that line. Just before the Brexit vote, someone went up to Newcastle and said, you know, if we if we leave Europe, it'll damage, it'll damage Britain's GDP. And someone in the audience apparently heckled and said, uh, well, that's your bloody GDP. That's not our GDP. Yeah. So I think there is this kind of feeling that the statistics, that these numbers that are thrown at us regularly, that the economy is getting better and better and better and better, which is what GDP tells us with certain blips. But it doesn't feel like that to an awful lot of people. And I think that kind of angers people. And therefore, there's a certain sort of receptiveness for, well, let's kick the tires of this at the very least. Let's look at how we might think about these things slightly differently. Let's kind of, you know, look at this sausage making factory that produces the sausage that we call, you know, the economy, GDP and growth. And let's just sort of have a look at what's inside. And I think that that's an exercise that's well worth doing. And your book is a great place to start. So David Pilling, thanks a lot. Thank you very much. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.